0: this is the rounds table this week a new technology to reduce hair loss during chemotherapy and do people diagnosed with asthma really have the disease hello and welcome to the rounds table a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthy debate my name is amol verma i'm pinch hitting this week for your usual fearless host kieran quinn And today I am joined by my good friend, Nathan Zilbert. Basically we've staged a mini coup this week and we're taking back the rounds table. That's right. So, no, we are giving Kieran a brief reprieve as he goes on to study and write his internal medicine board exam. So wish Kieran all the best. And we're pinch hitting for this week. We're excited to talk about two papers. Nathan is gonna talk about scalp cooling as a new approach to reducing hair loss during chemotherapy and i'm going to talk about re-evaluation of asthma in patients who have that diagnosed in the community so let's just dive right in okay nathan give me the one liner
1: on your study the one liner here is cooling a woman's scalp reduces her chance of chemotherapy associated alopecia when getting a systemic therapy for breast cancer
0: oh amazing okay so that's really interesting and I have to say when I saw this headline it kind of caught my eye. What was it about this study that made you want to talk about it? It's cuz I told
1: you. <laughs> yeah, because you suggested that I talk about it. No, so I mean this obviously was there were two uh, studies in uh, an issue of JAMA last month that both addressed this topic which I understand from further reading is a, a bit of an established treatment in Europe or a prophylactic measure used in Europe for for women getting breast cancer chemotherapy but there's not a lot of experience in North America. And these two studies from the United States looked into it in an American context. And the the study that I'm going to focus on was a randomized controlled trial, the the first such trial to evaluate this therapy. And it's a pretty simple concept to address a a common and distressing side effect of some chemotherapy agents, specifically hair loss, which I think we all would have some experience with with our patients or people that we know. And the, the main idea here is that simply cooling the scalp decreases blood flow to the scalp and the hair follicles and limits the flow of cytotoxic, cytotoxic drugs to those hair follicles and can decrease the rate of alopecia. And that's been shown to be effective in retrospective studies, and these investigators looked at it in a randomized controlled trial.
0: It seems like such a simple concept. That's what I think I found so appealing. So tell us what the, the design of the study was and who were the participants.
1: So this was a, a randomized controlled trial from seven centers in the United States, mostly major cancer centers, and it randomized women who were receiving either adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer in a two-to-one fashion to either active cooling of their scalp during, well, just before, during, and just after their uh, chemotherapy infusions or standard treatment, which would be no cooling. And they did this for four cycles of chemotherapy, either with anthracyclines or taxanes or combination of those two categories of drugs.
0: And just, you know, as a side bracket here, those are the commonly used... Yes,
1: these were all standard regimens for breast cancer uh, adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapy.
0: And they're commonly associated with hair loss.
1: Yes. And so what was the intervention? So this has been described in in the literature in a variety of ways, sometimes with more uh, crude measures such as cold ice packs or cold towels. But I guess uh, as often happens, people uh, see opportunities for, for product development and there's actually a couple of commercially available contraptions that are actually designed for this purpose, where it's basically a cap with some kind of a reservoir where actively cooled water is put in and it's put on the patient's head and keeps the head cold during their chemotherapy. So this this entire trial was done using a system called the Orbis-Paxman Hair Loss Prevention System, a piece of equipment designed for this purpose.
0: And unfortunately, neither you or I have received any compensation from Orbis or Paxman for this. Neither, I am waiting for Paxman to write me a check. But, <laughs> okay, uh... so I don't know if now is the right time to speak about it, but is there a reason why you would need a specific contraption rather than just putting ice packs on the on the
1: head. Well, I think it's just that it's more reliably uh, consistent in cooling the scalp for what turns out to be actually a pretty long period of time. At least in this study, they cooled the scalp for 30 minutes before chemotherapy, 90 minutes after chemotherapy, and for the whole infusion. So at least you know a few hours. And I think to keep the scalp cold for that whole time using you know ice packs or you know, cold towels would be probably less likely to be effective. And it it seems like even with this device, which we'll we'll get to, uh, it requires correct use in order to have an effective outcome. Okay. That makes sense. So do you
0: want to talk a little bit about the study design itself? You mentioned it was a randomized control trial. So you want to talk a little bit about the methods?
1: Yeah. So it was a randomized control trial, as I I think I mentioned, uh, two to to one with the uh, intervention group over seven American centers. They did limit it to patients again in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting, getting four cycles of treatment. So a relatively uh, sort of select patient group that would receive these drugs. And their main outcome was hair preservation, which they defined as either no hair loss or at least greater than 50% hair preservation, which could either be on a, a rating scale or also with the caveat that the patient not require a wig. And that's at the end of their four cycles. And then they also recorded adverse events uh, around scalp discomfort or cold discomfort. And they're also going to be studying the uh, sort of long-term oncologic outcomes in these patients, but that uh, wasn't reported in this first publication from their trial.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it's not possible to blind a study like this. Correct. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe
1: you could still put the contraption on people with non-cold water or something like that, but they, but they didn't do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, unblinded and the outcome is a little bit subjective in that it's, you know, someone measures hair loss, but at the end of the day, I guess it's pretty hard to fake whether or not you need a wig and you know, there's not a lot right. of subjectivity and and in hair loss. it's pretty hard to, to
1: fake, I guess, being, you know, bald. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I guess
0: fake is the wrong word, but be biased in your assessment of whether someone Right. Knows.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, I think yeah. we can acknowledge that there's an element of subjectivity, but based on, I think the categories that they used as defining success of either no hair loss loss or having more than 50% of your hair, seems like a pretty reasonable outcome to me. Perfect.
0: And they measured the outcome after four cycles of chemotherapy? Yes. That was, Perfect.
1: Yeah. Okay. So what they find? So they basically found that in the patients who didn't receive this intervention, all of them had significant hair loss, meaning that none of them met that uh, definition of hair preservation. And in that group, in their attention to treat analysis, they had 47 patients in their group that had the intervention, which were 95 patients, about half of those people had hair preservation. So a pretty uh, impressive result. Uh, The majority of those people were in the greater than 50% hair preservation category as opposed to the no hair loss category, but five patients actually had no hair loss, with the rest having still some, but the majority preserved. So a a pretty impressive result. Again, 50% of the people using this contraption had hair preservation.
0: And my understanding is that uh, they stopped the trial early, is that right?
1: Yeah, so they had an interim analysis after the planned 50% enrollment, which was the point that they got to here, and their effect was so significant that their, you know, that was it, met their pre-specified uh, cutoff for terminating the trial.
0: Okay, and so who were the participants? What did they look like?
1: So they were obviously all women receiving you know, systemic treatment for breast cancer. They were, on average, about 50 years old mostly white, and the majority of them were receiving uh, taxane-based chemotherapy, with about a third receiving anthracycline-based chemotherapy.
0: So just at first glance, Nathan, does this seem like a pretty representative
1: patient population? Yes, I I think so. I mean, uh, perhaps on the young side, you know, recognizing that breast cancer is more common in older women, and these people are just over age 50, but I mean, I think it seems like a pretty pretty representative population age-wise a lot of the centers were in major urban centers including some uh, you know major academic cancer centers and maybe that i don't know if that if that fact would bias to a, a larger proportion of white patients compared to baseline american rates but yeah i mean there was over 80% white patients which seems a bit high Okay, and... And in terms of the chemotherapy regimens, I mean, I, I think there are a number of standard regimens that medical oncologists and patients can choose for breast cancer. I'm sure there's some institutional biases as well, but these are all uh, standard regimens.
0: Okay, perfect. We talked a little bit about their primary outcome and the large difference between the two groups. Were there any secondary outcomes or safety
1: measures that were tracked? Yeah, so they, they tracked a variety of you know adverse events, specifically what they pre-identified as device-associated adverse events. There were no grade three, which are considered uh, severe adverse events, but a, a number of sort of lower grade ones. And, and these were uh, things like headaches, which they kind of expected to have some uh, complaints of, cold-related skin symptoms, and some you know uh, itchiness as well. So those were the common things, all for the majority uh, grade one which, uh, you know, not to be dismissed, but not interventions that resulted in the, excuse me, not adverse events resulting in the intervention being terminated or, or considered to be not tolerated. So it was, a, it was a relatively well-tolerated intervention.
0: Okay. And you mentioned that they're going to follow these patients for cancer outcomes down the line mm. and see if there's any difference. Is there any like physiologic or plausible reason why they would be different? Like, is there concern that you know, circulation to the brain may be reduced, and you may have well, higher they, incidence so, of brain
1: met. Well, something they. Like I mean, that. they specifically comment on scalp metastasis as opposed to brain metastases. I had I had kind of the same question when reading the manuscript, and they don't address a concern for brain metastases, which certainly can happen in, in breast cancer. They they do comment on the fact that isolated scalp metastases are very rare, and if you imagine an individual who is receiving curative intent therapy for breast cancer, if they end up with systemic disease, they usually end up with systemic disease. And whether they, you know, and I think the kind of theory would be that even if they were to have a higher rate of scalp metastases, that would maybe be unlikely to affect survival. But that's why this is being, uh, you know, these patients are being followed for uh, a planned five-year follow-up to, you know, have an answer to that question more definitively but it seemed like a, a reasonable thing to study and a safe thing to at least consider given that there's rarely you know a scalp only uh, metastatic disease
0: yeah for sure and you know it's unlikely that cold scalp reduces actual brain circulation so i think yeah. that's I mean, that. so, yeah. exactly Yeah. okay so that sounds like a very interesting yeah. and potentially scalable technology what's your take on this and what's the conclusion here
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think just one other point that I wanted to make was that they did report a higher rate of hair preservation with taxanes as opposed to anthracyclines for for no clear reason. They also had a variety of quality of life uh, instruments that they administered to these patients, both general and uh, body image related, and there were actually no differences on, on any of those instruments that were significant. I think one interesting point that was made in an accompanying editorial is that. You know, there's so many patients getting surgical treatment for breast cancer that it would be recommended that they get adjuvant or neoadjuvant treatment with this with chemotherapy and a large proportion of patients, you know, that was the term mentioned in uh, in the editorial, declined chemotherapy because of concern for hair loss. So they spent a lot of time in the paper trying to justify why no difference was seen. I guess kind of obviously the investigators hoped that they, they would see one. And I think one point to make would be, you know, Maybe this is still a, a valuable result because you can counsel women that there is this intervention that they could consider that has a, a significant rate of improving the likelihood that they won't lose their hair, particularly with taxane-based chemotherapy. And you know, I, I think it certainly seems like it could be a scalable intervention. And, and obviously, there's lots of malignancies where taxanes and anthracyclines are used where you, you could use it as well in a, in a metastatic setting in addition to an adjuvant setting the cost is a significant issue in the united states apparently this device costs between 1500 and 3000 and as mentioned there's an additional 2 hours of time spent in the in the chemo infusion clinic and there could be some costs associated with that depending on the the context and if it's you no know, obviously in our in our system if this were to be uh, you know, included, then there'd be issues with patient flow and costs. You know, both for the device and you know clinic space as well. And you know that would have to be considered if we were to widen the use of this.
0: Okay, thanks, Nate. That was that's great. It gave me
1: chills. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> yes, that's what I was working on for your whole last little bit. My brain was chugging away. Okay. Um, well, that's
1: what happens when it's not
0: being cooled down by. Uh, <laughs> the Orbis-Paxman system (laughs) okay let's change gears so I want to talk a little bit about re-evaluating the diagnosis of asthma in adults who had a physician diagnosis of asthma and this was a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association so
1: what's the bottom line with this study of all
0: So the one-liner on this study is that it was a prospective, multi-center cohort study conducted in 10 Canadian cities of adult patients who had a physician diagnosis of asthma. And the investigators found that when you reassessed the diagnosis of asthma in these patients, just over 30% did not have a diagnosis of asthma on reassessment.
1: It's more of a two-liner.
0: Yeah, that I you're. That's fair. That wasn't as concise as it possibly could have been.
1: Oh, it's okay. We're a little rusty. You're out of practice, yeah, and we both are. So, uh, why did you choose this this paper? What's uh, give me some background on on this, this issue?
0: Yeah, so asthma is an important and common medical condition, and one of the most interesting things about asthma is that its diagnosis can be particularly challenging. We know that uh, in the community, patients are often diagnosed with asthma on the basis of symptoms alone, whereas pretty much every guideline says that objective pulmonary function measurement is an important and crucial part of diagnosis of asthma. And so this study examines an important question, which is how often are people who are diagnosed with asthma and treated regularly for asthma, how often can asthma be confirmed in those patients and how many of them could actually be removed from therapy altogether?
1: and i guess just to just to probe one thing you said you know do you think asthma is a challenging diagnosis or do you think that it's often not diagnosed correctly like i think those are two different
0: things yeah i think they're they're different and related so i think one of the things is that shortness of breath and wheeze are common symptoms um and asthma is one of the explanations but certainly not the only explanation for those symptoms um, and that there are symptoms that can often be transient And I think the treatment for asthma is often felt to be fairly harmless, even though it's not. But, you know, physicians may feel that way. And so just try this puffer, your wheeze gets better, and you end up with a diagnosis of asthma, right? And so I think we know for sure that guideline recommendations are not followed. But we also know that guidelines are flawed and, you know, uh, there are different phenotypes of asthma. Yeah, access to testing. may be difficult. Yeah, exactly. So there may be a lot of different reasons why, but I think the one point is true, which is that... Asthma is not well diagnosed um, for many participants
1: or many patients. All right. So why don't you go through the methods in this study? What did they they do?
0: Yeah. So this was uh, a study by the Canadian Respiratory Research Network. And what they did was they sampled a random population sample using random digit dialing. So just random phone calls in 10 Canadian cities with their surrounding areas and they called 16,000 people and asked them whether they had a physician diagnosis of asthma, and ultimately they were able to identify a cohort of 700 participants who said that they did indeed have uh, a physician diagnosis of asthma. I should specify that these were all uh, participants over the age of 18, so we're talking about adults with asthma. The investigators then tried to contact the physicians of those patients and were able to contact about 75% of the physicians and indeed confirm that the asthma was the diagnosis in those patients. And then they looked to see what was the concrete evidence or how asthma had been diagnosed, whether pulmonary function testing were done. And so then with this cohort, they put them through a four week algorithm or a four week protocol to reassess the diagnosis of asthma. And that protocol involved first performing spirometry with and without a bronchodilator. And then if, the, if asthma was confirmed, then that person was considered to have asthma confirmed. If it was not confirmed, then they went on to subsequent testing over a series of weeks, including methicoline challenge. And then, in fact, if, if they still did not confirm asthma, they tapered all of their asthma medications and then reassessed for asthma. And if at the end of that they still had not confirmed asthma, they saw a respirologist who did a full assessment and determined whether, in fact, asthma w- could be confirmed in those participants.
1: It's a pretty interesting uh, design, you know, cold calling over 10,000 people to kind of get this population cohort. It's uh, it's not something that you see that often, is it? I mean, it's, it's interesting.
0: I think it's a, a standard sampling technique for a, a survey or, or population-based studies, actually, these sort of random digit dialing. You see it more in yeah, large but then em- they epidemiologic end up, But then uh, they end surveys. up
1: getting these people into the clinic and doing you know, significant pulmonary function testing on them. So it's not just a survey, it's...
0: Uh... I, I totally agree with you. So I think one of the strengths of this study actually is that it's theoretically at least a, a representative population sample from a, a, basically across Canada. Yeah. And so I think that's a, that's a major strength of this study. You're right. So the, the major outcome for this study that they were interested in looking at was what proportion of patients could the diagnosis of current asthma be ruled out? And I want to spend a second and just think about that. So it's the diagnosis of current asthma at that time, which does two things. It One, uh, could potentially call into question the original diagnosis of asthma. So some proportion of these patients maybe never had asthma. But also, there was some proportion of these patients who had asthma formally diagnosed according to guidelines and then did not have asthma again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it raises two interesting questions around uh, whether the initial diagnosis was flawed or whether asthma is just a condition that waxes and wanes. Um, And
1: probably both is what we are seeing in these results.
0: Yeah, so let's jump to the results. So the study population, I mentioned it was about 700 participants. They ultimately had complete follow-up on 613 participants. The participants were an average of around 50 years of age, about 65% female, about 90% white. And they had to have been diagnosed with asthma in the last five years. So that was another sort of criteria that they used to make sure that it was a bit more stringent, that their diagnosis was fairly recent. And
1: definitely adult
0: onset. That's right. That's right. The average age at asthma onset to speak to that point was about 45 years or 48 years. So they were older uh, participants, older when they were diagnosed with with the asthma. What they found was that in 33% or so of of the participants, they were able to rule out asthma. They were able to stop all asthma medications, completely rule out asthma. And then when they even followed those people for an extra year, about 30%, so most of them, still did not have have asthma. About 3% ultimately had asthma, again, either on the basis of symptoms or a repeat spirometry and methacholine testing that showed that they did have uh, reversible airway obstruction. So, you know, nearly one in three people who have a physician diagnosis of asthma, if you then put them through a subsequent reassessment of their asthma, do not have a diagnosis of asthma. That's a pretty headline-grabbing conclusion.
1: I agree. I mean, it's not quite half people don't lose their hair, but it's impressive.
0: <laughs> I, my favorite part about these podcasts is that we can feel as if we own the studies that we discuss. <laughs> yes, Nathan, your study was superior to my study. Uh, and then you said it, but uh, carry on. <laughs> um, all right, so I think there are some really interesting things to, to dig into here. So first, let's look at the initial diagnosis of asthma between the two groups.
1: Okay. So were there any differences between how asthma was diagnosed or by whom it was diagnosed among the, uh, the patients who were ultimately confirmed to have asthma compared to those where it was ruled out?
0: Yeah, so people who ultimately had asthma ruled out were less likely to have a formal uh, pulmonary function-based diagnosis of asthma in the, in the first place. Testing of airflow limitation through some formal test um, was done in about half of all participants, okay? So this is what we know. We know that uh, in previous studies have shown that half of asthma is diagnosed without formal testing, and that was borne out again in this study. The interesting thing is people who had asthma confirmed, about 55% of them had formal testing, whereas people who had asthma ruled out, only 43% had formal testing when they were initially diagnosed with asthma. So there was a difference. I think the more interesting difference is that even though about half of people had asthma tested for and were diagnosed with asthma, a lot of those initial tests didn't even show that they had asthma. Does that make sense? So 50% of people had an asthma test. Mm -hmm. Only 35% of those tests were actually positive for asthma, but the patient still still received a diagnosis of asthma. asthma. So that's interesting. And having a positive test for asthma was even more likely to then you have confirmed asthma it was even a more strong predictor of having asthma confirmed, which is I guess uh, speaks to what proportion of these patients who had asthma ruled out, it was because the diagnosis was not done well initially, right? It speaks to the fact that there is problems with the initial diagnosis. At least,
1: at least in a, in a part of that
0: group. Yeah, in a proportion of that group. Now, having said that, um, in people who had asthma ruled out, forty percent of them had had spirometry done. So had had the diagnosis made according to guidelines and, you know, a good 15 to 20% of them actually had confirmed asthma on spirometry initially. So there's still a population of people in whom asthma was present on one spirometry uh, test and then was not present on a subsequent test. So that's that second population.
1: So what are your takeaways from this and and what are the takeaways of the investigators? Should we be doing annual testing on people diagnosed with asthma? How do we increase adherence to guidelines in terms of diagnostic testing at the beginning? I guess those seem to be the two uh, main issues for me.
0: Yeah, so I think that the the major takeaways from this study are that first, using spirometry to initially diagnose asthma is really important. that was kind of already known. The second and perhaps more important takeaway and, and really novel takeaway from this study is that in people who have a physician given diagnosis of asthma, it's worthwhile to re-examine that diagnosis and up to one in three of them could be taken off of their medications or could have that label removed. And You know exactly how often this testing should be done is not clear Mm -hmm. and also you know when it should be done after the initial diagnosis is not clear I think if we're being very strict about the interpretation of this study it's within five years they should be re-examined at some point and you know there's a good chance that you may be able to take some people off of medications.
1: Great. Well thanks Amol.
0: All right thanks Nathan. it was a bit rusty getting back on the horse, but it wasn't, all in all, it wasn't a total train wreck. I
1: think we made it to the end of the trail.
0: <laughs> so, to reward ourselves, let's entertain each other with a good stuff article.
1: Yes, and because I was feeling nostalgic and we, we haven't done this together in a while, I, I chose for my good stuff uh, an essay from the New York Times because I know that that's your favorite thing to criticize for these yes it's my uh, least
0: favorite because of its lack of complete lack of originality or any effort in searching for news uh, that the vast majority of our participants
1: have probably already heard nevertheless or of our was... listeners
0: have probably already heard
1: <laughs> nevertheless but enlighten us nevertheless they... i was touched by an article from uh, the march 1st issue called informed patient don't bet on it And it was uh, a discussion about informed consent by two uh, medical oncologists and uh, the challenges in uh, really achieving that goal in our patient interactions. And maybe you've read it already. Maybe you haven't. But I know that, Amol, you uh, either have already probably enjoyed it or will enjoy it when you read it, I hope, later tonight. Now, let me guess, you've chosen something from The Atlantic or some more uh, highbrow uh, highbrow publication. So uh, am, I, am I right?
0: You are correct yeah. that I've chosen something from a coastal elite kind of publication. Um, so, actually, our, our, our uh, recommendations are somewhat... Uh, um, related in that uh, yeah, my mine, mine just
1: with fewer words. I and chose an probably article probably a lower reading level vocabulary.
0: <laughs> I chose an article that was
1: co-published in the Atlantic. Ah, yes, and
0: ProPublica. Creatures of habit, <laughs> uh, called "When Evidence Says No, But Doctors Say Yes." So it's an article about how um, we have a lot of research that contradicts common practices, and yet. You know, as a result of either a popular opinion or, to be honest, anxiety, uh, sometimes patients ask for specific tests even though we're not, we know that they're not helpful, mm-hmm. and doctors often oblige. Yes. Um, and so this article sort of examines some of the psychology behind that and tries to get an understanding of why that might be the case. And so I recommend it to our listeners.
1: Well, next time you have an hour, read a mole's article, and when you have five minutes, read mine. <laughs> and with that. <laughs> Dig at
0: <laughs> another attack on intellectuals. Thank you, Nathan, for being the voice of the people. <laughs> the people. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I hope we can do this again sometime if Kieran ever lets us come back. There's yeah. a good chance that he won't.
1: Yeah. Best of luck, Kieran. And uh, you know, if you're taking a vacation or you have another exam to take, Amol and I uh, would love to uh, to chip in again. It's been fun.
0: The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.